You all look very bright. Uh, The talk tonight is about the movement from being alone, being deeply inside yourself, being silent, and shifting worlds, entering the world of doing rather than just being, of being with people and of talking. And it's a bit about how to do that somewhat gracefully. (laughs) Although, (laughs) I don't think I've ever experienced it as very graceful. (laughs) Uh, And which actually reminds me of um, one of the first times that I ever did a three-month course. And it was this time and it was the first year they ever decided to have, I don't think they did, they, it, it was breaking silence the next afternoon. And so I was terrified of breaking silence. So I had this great idea which I carried out very fully. I've told a few of you about this already. Silence was going to break about four o'clock in the afternoon, so I went out to the back of the woods without any flashlight. I decided no flashlight. And I brought my sleeping bag, and I brought one of the mats that I had slept on, and I went out as far back there as I could without a flashlight, and I spent the night because I just didn't want the retreat to end. I didn't want silence to break. I was holding on. And it was a very interesting night. (laughs) It snowed. (laughs) And I was really upset I didn't bring my flashlight, because it just was an insurance. I couldn't come back. I couldn't find my way. And it was so cold. And I went through this tremendous aversion to the snow and the cold, and eventually I just accepted. I just dropped into this really wonderful place of acceptance. Came back and joined in. It was like entering a beehive. Breaking silences. It's just like walking into a beehive. You have to be careful and quiet, or you'll get stung. So some of you might be really wanting the retreat to end. Some of you might not want it to end. Both of those positions are suffering. And it's important to ask yourself what it is you want to last, or what it is you might want to end early. What does it mean to say that this is the end? The whole concept of beginning or ending, we're blinded by this idea that there's a solid, fixed ending right now. (laughs) Like ending ending the sound. (laughs) So we think there's a big difference between 
tonight and tomorrow afternoon. We think there's a big difference between in retreat and out of retreat. And this concept itself causes us a tremendous amount of suffering. Because tomorrow at four we'll be gathering together and talking. And it's almost like a whistle blows in our heads. You know, and we go, oh, yippee, I can stop paying attention. It's like we've been paying attention for so long, and, and that, that moment, all of a sudden, it's over. But it isn't over. You'll still be smelling and tasting and touching and seeing and hearing and thinking. Nothing changes. Yet there is a shift. Today I was walking down the road, and actually it was yesterday, and I saw one of the yogis out there, and I could tell he hadn't been out yet, and this was his first kind of journey out. And there was a huge machine down on Haas Hill Road, on that road, the dirt road right down here. And he was standing there for about 15 minutes, just looking at this machinery. Well, from, you know, of course, from being out in this world, it looks very odd for someone to stop and stare for 15 minutes <laughs> at a piece of, <laughs> like a truck. It's a little odd. And you'll all probably find yourself in that position. It's like, um, it's like being a child. And the, the simplest things are extraordinarily interesting. You know, you're going to a supermarket, it's going to be a really <laughs> amazing thing. And most of you probably think you're not very quiet. You've probably had a lot of thoughts of anticipating and wearing and planning and waiting. And yet you're very quiet. The shift is that you're not used to taking in stimuli. Sometimes it's fun, the shift, but sometimes it isn't. It's like having about 100 two- or three-year-olds running around the place. I had read a book several years ago called Your Two-Year-Old, Terrible or Tender. And you might keep in mind that there's going to be a lot of terribleness and tenderness running around here for the next six days. And this, this is important to keep in mind for staff and teachers and yogis, that the <laughs> it's a very extraordinary time. For example, for you, mostly, it's a busy day if you have to take a shower and answer a couple of notes in a morning. <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, <laughs> hectic. <laughs> Sometimes you'll come in for an interview and you'll say you've had a busy day, and it's like, <laughs> I can't imagine what it is that you're calling busy. It's really funny from this end. <laughs> What could they possibly be doing? 
So this process, what you're not, you're not realizing mostly is that you're not used to doing things and not taking in stimulation. And so the process has to be gentle, very gentle. Mostly it's a matter of balancing your energy. If you think of having been here like if you had a pot with a lid on it and you put it on a stove with some fire under it and you just cooked it and cooked it and cooked it and cooked it for three months. (laughs) And then you take the lid off. It's like tomorrow it's going to be like taking the lid off a hundred people that have been cooking you know, under pressure for three months. All this energy has been building and building and contained and contained. And most people at this point think I'm kidding, but tomorrow is like a major explosion for you and for us. It's important to remember that the staff and the teachers are tired and that you have enormous amounts of energy, (laughs) you know, just enormous amounts that you have no idea you have. And so there's kind of a gap. (laughs) And that can make for the need for a lot of patience between the two worlds. Um, (laughs) We're out of gas, (laughs) and you've got a lot. Mostly people resist the shift. You know, you might resist shifting into talking. When you do, though, you might notice that once you do, it's very, very hard to stop. It's my experience. Every time I go through the end of a retreat, I don't want to stop, and I go to the very last second, and I don't want to talk, and the minute I open my mouth, (laughs) I can't stop. There's many people who can testify to this. So, you might even, when you're talking, you'll recognize that you want to stop, but there's something that prevents it. It's like, you just, you know, you, you even think, I should really stop, but then you just keep going. And so there's going to be a structure provided for you. There'll be a, a schedule posted and there'll be sittings every day. And when you hear the bell, it's going to be very hard to disengage. It's like you'll have to yank yourself out of the conversations. And it's very important for each of, you know, all of you to encourage each other to do that. Usually if you've done one three-month course, you have a sense of of what this means. So those of you who have done them, you might help other people kind of shoo them into the hall. Uh, By providing a structure, it usually helps prevent major migraines. You might still get a few headaches. And if you, I'm I'm serious, if you get some headaches, it's just that, again, you're not used to taking in stimulation. And you might not. So it needs to be a gentle process of knowing when it's time to withdraw back inside yourself again, and then moving out, getting a dose of that, coming back in. That's why we have 
I call it Disintegration Week. That's why we have Disintegration Week. After the initial breaking of silence in here, tomorrow at four, there'll be a few hours for talking with each other. And I'd like to ask you to try a voluntary experiment. And it might be that it's only for five minutes, or it could be you do it for (coughs) half hour, or you might try to do it for that night. It's a, it's a very difficult experiment. I've tried it many times. And it's to see if you can keep the conversation to, the, to just who's present, talking about just who's present. So if there's three people or two people or five, to see if you can keep it to talk about yourself or the people there. And this is the nicest time to try that. You've got <laughs> three months of material stored up, so it's not like you don't have anything to say about yourself. Um, and you might just, you, you know, if you don't do it, you don't do it, but it can be very interesting to see how much of a tendency there is in all of us to talk about other people. And it's usually harmful. And if you happen to find yourself in the middle of a sentence that you're talking about someone, this isn't meant for you to judge yourself or criticize yourself for doing that. It's just to notice and go, oh yeah, here we go again. It's mainly a practice of discovering, oh, I'm doing it again, and fine you know, not to, not to judge it. It's fascinating. Mostly people find that 80% of what they usually talk about gets cut out. And if you find that you're talking about someone, just maybe drop into some silence for a while with the person. You know, you don't have to always talk in a conversation. There can be spaces of silence. It's really fun to try this once. <laughs> and usually we forget, you know, after a couple of days we forget, so it, you might as well try it. Stephen talked a bit last night about honesty and right speech. And I wanted to mention that right speech really means not hurting others through our speech. And partly this means that there's a lot of listening going on, as well as speaking. You might kind of ask yourself um, what communication really is. Why do we communicate? And this, is, again, is a wonderful place to explore what communication is for you. Not to have an idea about what it is, but to explore it. Watching your motivation and your intention when you go to speak. You can ask yourself, am I, am I listening or speaking to judge or to understand? 
And this takes humility and attention. Usually we have a fixed idea about people or things, and, th and we think, well, this is how this person is. And it's quite interesting to talk to the people you've been attracted to, or talk to the people you've had aversion to, or been neutral toward. It's fascinating. It's so much fun, because you can go beyond the pleasant, the conditioned pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality, and to explore who that person really is with a great deal of care and respect. It's nice to remember that we need to approach people like we would like to be approached. You've been exploring your own mind for three months, learning, hopefully, to have a great deal of compassion for yourself. If you just think about this little area of your body <laughs> and how much suffering has happened in here for three months, and just think about that everybody's been through that here, it opens us to this potential for great compassion for us all. So we all have our own unique conditioning you know, that makes up the color and shade and tone of ourselves. So we can allow for our own humanness. We learn to accept ourselves. This is the opportunity and challenge to see how that can be in your relationships with other people, that we're human. It can help us learn to live in harmony rather than with backbiting and torture. It's learning to live together peacefully. On the level of truthfulness, of not telling lies, there's also the other part of that where it means speaking the truth. And when you start to speak, you might notice when there's a movement to exaggerate, or you might notice when you leave parts out of a story, or you, know, you might leave a big chunk out. And again, not to judge it, but just notice how you feel when you're exaggerating or when you leave a chunk out. It's, again, it's very interesting. Anyone who is familiar with the process of denial, you know, such as alcoholism or sexual abuse, physical abuse, and on and on, know to some extent the pain of denial, of not being able to talk about the unbearable truth. Truth and forgiveness go together. They're partners. Truth makes space for understanding. When we can allow for the pain to be there and to surface, to not deny the pain, this makes space for the forgiveness to happen. Which 
implies discretion. Timing is very important. If someone, if you know that someone isn't going to be able to hear what you have to say, it's important to look at your motivation because if they're not going to be able to understand it, why communicate it? What's communication? Is it to judge or condemn or for understanding? This discretion requires an enormous amount of patience because it can't be forced. There's a title of a book that I really like by Adrian Rich called A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far. We all need this wild patience because communication, a true, actual, genuine communication requires this patience for the understanding to occur. It's hard to understand ourselves, as you can see. It's hard enough to do it with ourselves, never mind other people. This also means not dumping on other people, our anger or our fear. It means feeling these feelings within ourselves And then there's the possibility of communicating for understanding. We can really be open to what the other person has to say rather than going into the conversation with the intention to put down. If we can do this, it makes the space for healing among us human beings who make a lot of mistakes, who hurt, we hurt each other a lot. And if we can't do that, the pain stays buried. And this is, this is important. No matter what's happened to us in our life, or who we are, what our story is, we've all been hurt, and we all hurt. It's what happens. It's really much simpler to make the world into the good guys and the bad guys. This is a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn from the Gulag Archipelago. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Solzhenitsyn is saying that the good guys are the bad guys, and the bad guys are the good guys. It's not so black and white. And he says, well, look into your heart. Wake up. 
What causes harm is not being aware of your own heart and feelings. It's not being honest with yourself when you're having a painful emotion of sadness or fear or anger. If we can't acknowledge our unskillful actions, what causes harm, what's so much more harmful than the actuality of an unskillful action or the actuality of a painful feeling is not being able to admit that they're there. That's what causes us so much pain. And it's, it's the hardest thing that I've seen for all of us to do, to acknowledge our own difficulties, our, our own painful actions. And yet this is what's so liberating. This is the lifeblood of what it takes for people to live together in harmony rather than with deceit and lies. And so this speaking the truth is part of the five precepts, which is sila. Sila being the foundation for this practice, for being awake. So since I'm talking about a precept, I wanted to remind you that during Integration Week, the precepts are still on. Even though silence is broken, the Sangha here is still um, in need of this harmony of not taking life, of not taking what is not given, of not telling lies, speaking the truth, of not clouding the mind with intoxicants, and maintaining celibacy. And I mentioned maintaining celibacy last because I wanted to emphasize it. Um, You've probably noticed that there are times while you're here that you can be very open and fragile emotionally. And this is something that we all share. In terms of the precepts, the guideline, um, the guidelines aren't meant to be saying, you can't do this, and don't do that, you should do this. It's not meant to be these commandments. I kind of see them as really just common sense. If you check in with your heart, if you check in with your feelings, and you imagine if this action that you're about to do is going to cause harm to yourself or someone else, then (laughs) it's not a good idea. They're not complicated. It's much easier to keep the precepts here than out in the world. It gets more complicated Life is much more busy and more complicated. It's not as easy to check in with your heart. So this time of being shifting worlds is a wonderful time to check into this difference between it being common sense and being told to be a good girl or a good boy. 
often the desire for sex can be confused with the desire for intimacy. You might think about what your own idea of what intimacy is. My own sense of it is that it means a kind of caring and warmth, sharing. It's a kind of openness with another person. And as children, most of us haven't had many, if any, role models of adults who are intimate but not sexual. There's an arduous journey for most of us to learn the difference between sexuality and intimacy or understanding the connection of intimacy and sexuality. So these next days are a great time to explore intimacy between adults with, while being celibate. It's a great structure. It's a very safe place to explore this. And that's why the precept is so important, because you can be safe and explore this. If we keep the precepts, it's safe. If you ever ask anyone to be honest with you about their own history of their sexuality, usually there's at least a few twinges of discomfort or anguish on hearing the stories, whether you're male or female. In hearing the stories, usually this can uh, open us to the greatest compassion for us all. Sexuality can manifest between the extremes of indulgence and repression. It's our great tragedy as human beings not to know how to deal with this energy, whether you're a lay person or a monk or a nun. The Buddha talked about being free from greed, being free from hatred, and being free from delusion. And most people who begin to practice, when they hear this, they think, oh, that's a great idea. And then they decide that they're going to be perfect, perfectly free from greed, perfectly free from hatred, and perfectly free from delusion. They want to be there immediately, already perfect, right now. My own sense of this is that we have to take a long-range view. <laughs> Anyone who's practiced for a while 
has learned they have to take a long-range view. It's not an immediate process. Often it takes being able to admit that you're a human being. You know, it's kind of, again, you know, well, what are we, what are, where are we beginning from? What's the first step? Being a human being means that there's sleepiness. So many people come in and they, you know, they think that, <laughs> you know, that sleepiness is really something horrible. But if you think about it a minute, sleepiness is something that <laughs> comes from being here. You know, we get tired sometimes. Um, restlessness, desire, laughter, anger, lust, jealousy, delight, despair. It's important to recognize that all these things are part of being human. And if we can accept in the midst of our humanness that they're here, then we can begin to have the strength of mind to see them clearly and learn not to be oppressed by them. But if we're fighting them, we're making them to be a problem. There's aversion there. We're reinforcing aversion. In this practice, freedom is often expressed as detachment. And many people often misunderstand detachment and interpret it to mean to not be connected, to not have emotions. So to be connected to one's feelings can be interpreted to be unspiritual. So if you're angry, that means you're reinforcing hatred. And if you're sad, that means that you're attached. The message here is that if you're suffering, one is attached. And the crucial thing to ask, I think, is attached to what? What does attachment actually mean? Does detachment mean not connecting? If you've ever experienced the death of some being or some person to whom you felt connected, or if you've been fortunate enough to allow your heart to ever be touched by some being or some person, then a change in the relationship or a death or an ending will usually bring up powerful feelings of sadness, or loss, or fear, or anger. And if one goes through that process, usually one accepts it, if you go through the process fully. And this process usually enables us to question the meaning of life, what it is to be a person, a human being, and in, in, in relationship on this planet. It can be a great time of spiritual growth, any kind of major change or death. Many of us interpret the message, attachment is suffering, to mean that we should not feel sadness or grief or anger. 
that if only I could stop being attached, then I wouldn't feel pain anymore. If only we could stop connecting, we wouldn't feel fear. And this reinforces usually the message we received as as children that it's important to shut down your heart to joy and pain because the pain is unacceptable. Why is so much of our planet dying? If I don't connect with people or beings or with nature, I won't have to feel painful feelings when the relationship changes or if the lake I swim in dies or if the looms die from acid rain, the trees. If I don't connect, then I won't have to feel any loneliness or sadness anymore. Often, not connecting, detachment is seen as wisdom. But this is not wisdom, it's aversion. These emotions will surface because it's part of being alive. It's part of what happens when we connect to life. Understanding develops when we are able to feel them. And Vipassana is what enables us to do this. I've never found anything else to help in this way. Just to see them clearly, that they're not ours, and we can let them arise and pass away. We don't have to identify with it. It's so freeing. It's so pure. So if we're experiencing sadness, it doesn't mean that we have to get rid of it. We don't have to identify with it. It can just come and go. It has its own energy. There's a saying that I like a lot, mountains are not afraid of heights. Seas are not ashamed of depth. Mountains are not afraid of heights, and seas are not afraid of depths. There's the heights, there's the joys, and the concentration, and the mindfulness, and equanimity, and clarity, caring, energy, confidence, joy. And there's the depths, there's the sorrows. If we get attached to the emotional world, it's getting attached to the depths. It's identification. It's suffering. If we get attached to the heights, to the clarity, that's attachment to detachment. And that's going to be something you're going to be running into in the next few days attachment to detachment, attachment to clarity. But it's suffering. It's not peace. 
And that brings us to this last part of the talk that I'd like to share. And that's about expectations, expecting a lot from the practice. Sometimes I wish I was sending you all out to a culture that isn't dying. I wish I was sending you all out to a culture that has a great deal of understanding and approval and acceptance of what we're doing here. Uh, This incredible commitment that you've all had to seeing clearly, to seeing the truth, to be free. It's something that you could walk out and be applauded for, which is what should happen. I mean, this is a great, great journey. And it's a challenge to walk out to Christmas time. I mean, it's a real, it's a real trip out there right now. <laughs> it's Christmas. <laughs> time to buy and buy and buy and buy and buy. Um, it's the great. It's a consumer stream out there right now. This practice is about. It's it's very subtle. <laughs> it's not like, you know. It's it's about developing a strong mind to meet with and receive. It's to receive tenderly each moment, to see it clearly. It's subtle. I remember watching this movie called Little Big Man, and the chief was sitting on a hill, and he, it was the day he thought he was going to die, but he didn't. It was... <laughs> and he was saying that... Um, for him, the clouds and the sky and the rivers and the earth are all alive. And in meeting up with the white people, it was so surprising to him because he saw that white people see them all as dead, that they're not alive. And because that's how our culture views the earth and all the things on it, stones, birds, deer, etc., there's very little grounding with our own bodies and with the earth. It's like we don't realize we need them. Because of this, a lot of people in our culture have a very shaky sense of themselves, of their own goodness, of trust. If you're connected to the earth, there's a deep security, a deep trust, an understanding of a basic goodness. But a couple of weeks ago, I went out to town to meet an old friend who had been on staff, one of the first staffs here, and had sat for many years. And he said that he realized at a certain point that he had to admit to himself that for many years he came to IMS and to practice, to retreats, for approval 
and for appreciation to find a family and to find a home to try to feel special somehow and from that perspective I've seen a lot of people use the practice to feel adequate as a person to have a grounded sense of themselves there's a big step missing for most of us in this culture we don't have traditions, especially spiritual traditions, that helps guide us. The first step is guiding a child's psyche to maturity. It's like that's what enables a boy child to become a man and a girl child to become a woman and feel empowered and proud and connected with the culture. It's like it's possible to find meaning in that process. It's like a um, rite of passage. And this helps the child face the world. And most of us have suffered tremendous loss because we don't have that. It's, it's something that is the reason why our culture is dying. There's no tradition that, that celebrates this journey into facing the world and makes it into uh, um, something to be proud of. I had a very good friend kill himself this summer and I really sensed that he was just yearning for this rite of passage, looking for a man to help guide him through this. If this passage, rite of passage, does happen, if it happens in order, what usually happens is that one eventually wants to find something deeper, deeper than birth and death is a yearning to go deeply inside. Not everybody will do it, but that, that's the process. It's doing what you're doing now, seeking to liberate yourself from this prison of identification with the I. Because this first step isn't often provided for, what I, no what I notice is that many people who come here to practice want more from the practice than it can give. They want more from IMS than it can give, than it can possibly yield. It's wanting what is supposed to be being provided for from the culture, not from the practice. So many people expect this practice to solve all their problems or to make you feel adequate as a person or to provide a home for working all these things out. And this isn't possible. And when we can understand this, that this practice is working on a level it's working on a level that's very, very deep. 
It's a very powerful medicine. It's meant to change your perspective entirely. It's meant to change your perspective completely. If you can distinguish between these two levels, between these two steps, what happens is that there can be a genuine appreciation for what the practice can do. And I've noticed that over the years, the people who've practiced for a long time start distinguishing that and expecting, actually expecting less from the practice, but actually having more motivation in a genuine way to do it. It's very interesting. And finding things outside of the practice to help ground the person or um, find the adequacy inside. The happiness that comes from this practice <laughs> is extraordinarily subtle. <laughs> <laughs> It's not something you can go home displaying to everybody. Oh boy, am I happy. It's not based on experience. It's not based on changing our neurotic personalities. And it's like in the next couple of days you're going to notice, you know, when, when I go on retreat and when, within a couple of days Michelle starts coming back, it's like, oh no, here she is again. But you'll, you know, you get used to it. <laughs> you know, you just, you're just going to start coming back into being your old personalities. And it's just a shift into another world. And if you're not fighting that, if you're not expecting the practice to solve that, <laughs> it's great. It's not a problem. The practice isn't based on changing what's happening. It's based on changing your perspective on what's happening. It's changing your relationship to what's happening. It's about discovering a deep inner strength and a deep inner security that isn't affected by what's happening. And that's the strength. And, that, and that's why it's so subtle. <laughs> It's so subtle because what's happening doesn't matter. It's an inner home. It's based on peace. It's based on a mind that's so soft and flexible, but extraordinarily alert, so that it's not overwhelmed by each moment, moment to moment. It's being able to be with the life as it's flowing. Krishnamurti says that only you know if you're incorruptible. And I love that a lot. When you leave a retreat, there's often a feeling of, well, what, what happened? What do I leave here with? What, 
what, could, what did I get? Did I get an A? <laughs> Was I the best in the class? You know, what do I tell people? What if my practice is worse than theirs? What if they did better? What if I did better? I mean, there's just all this comparing. <laughs> and hopefully you didn't get anything. It's not meant to give you anything. It's really meant to be a dumping ground. This is like one big garbage dump. <laughs> it's meant, you're spo- you know, it's just a letting go. It's just, hopefully you're not taking anything away. Absolutely nothing. The less you take, the better. It's such a burden to have to take anything, or to have to know anything. It's a burden. Just, just, it's all about just coming back. Ajahn Chah used to say something like, it's like you're carrying this big pack, (laughs) you know, a big sack, and then you just put it down. (laughs) And then you pick it up again, and then you put it down. And you know, you pick it up again and you put it down. It's our, it, we're gonna, you're going to go off a billion times, and then you'll remember and you'll come back. The wonderful thing about mindfulness is that in one moment, the mindfulness has its little parts, but the initial part of mindfulness is remembering. So in one moment, it's that remembering to come back that's so important. That's all you need. And remember, it's like you don't have to focus on all that time you've been away. And that's, that's what you can let go of, focusing on being away. All you need to focus on is coming back. That's the only thing we have. It's very pure. Often people make fun of this practice because it's so dry, it's, there's not a lot of ritual. Um, but its beauty is its purity. It's very simple. It's not much to carry. I'd like to end with a quote from Ash Wednesday, it's T.S. Eliot. Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. And even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated 
and let my cry come unto thee. Suffer us not to be separated. Let's sit for a few minutes. <laughs> 